It is good to see all of you here. And uh, today of the day of the add an hour to your nap on Sunday afternoon. Um, we're starting a petition to end this uh, daylight savings things once and for all. Please uh, get behind me on this. Man, do I hate this stuff. Okay, so here we go. Um, as we are jumping into our study of Daniel, it's, it's really kind of fun to, uh, to be studying something um, that's a little intimidating to teach in a sermon series. Um, and there's a lot of joy and fun in this, but when I, when I taught this in a different setting, the first almost three hours out of 16 hours of teaching was historical background. And, and I, that's, I mean, that's like, I don't know, six, eight sermons. And so I don't know that we want to take six or eight sermons. So having to restructure, here's how we're going to be doing it. We'll be moving slowly, especially at first, because when we hit a name, we're going to stop and talk about who that is. And why they're in the why they're in the passage and, and what their role is. So we're gonna we're gonna lay the groundwork for this book so that as we move through it, there will be a rich foundation for everything that grows there. And so um, uh, I hope you're up for that. And we will see how long this takes us to get through the book of Daniel. Um, it's certainly not one we want to rush through. We want to enjoy it and savor it as we go through it. And so um, we will be. I promised last week that we would start today though on the conversation of, of kind of why. Um, I felt like this was a good book for us to study. Um, so, you know, you may know that the, the American experiment in many ways represents a group of people proclaiming the highest tenets of freedom and responsibility as was found in the Bible in particular and in Judeo-Christian ethic in, in general. Now, even, even what they espoused and proclaimed, they didn't get. They didn't live out. And they understood that a lot of this was aspirational, and it was things for us that we were going to be working toward. And to this day, a couple hundred years later, we still haven't mastered even some of the basic principles that the nation was founded on, which again, for us as Christians, should not be surprising. They were founded on things um, that would require the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of the individual and in the church family. But that was the experiment. What if we start with some of these ideals? And they did. Um, and much of the wealth and freedom that we see here in this nation and around the world is because of that experiment. Um, the truth is that, that, that the, the success of that experiment in so many ways is, has changed the, the direction of culture around the world, sometimes in bad ways, but often in very good ways. Um, it's created a culture, for example, where we create so many extra calories that the one of the new issues that, that homeless people face in America is obesity. Now, that's not been a problem historically. People who were homeless and didn't have work and didn't have jobs, one of their difficulties wasn't obesity. It was starvation. And so when you've created a culture that cranks out and sloughs off so many extra calories, that's unthinkable. We'll have Passover here in a few weeks, and we'll experience that here. And one of the funny things for us at Passover is... Our kids will come to Passover and say, hey, can we go out to eat after? Because this food was boring. And there's only like six choices. And, and it's kind of bland. And I didn't like it very much. Whereas that was considered a feast. And in most of the world today would be considered a feast. Six choices. How many of you done mission trips? Especially like to South and Central America. You done that? Every meal. Right? Pretty much the same. If you're down in the DR, let me guess, 
chicken and rice? Is that what we're having for breakfast, lunch, dinner, with some plantains, right? Sometimes cooked different ways, right? This is, this is what, you, that's the world today, much less thousands of years ago, and the, the level of this is, is pretty wild. There's a lot of positives to that. That being said, there's also some issues in that that experiment, of course, is changing. And that, of course, what we're going to face and what we're going to happen is that what happens over time is that the only way that works, and we're going to talk about this more in a minute, but the kingdom of man is not necessarily immoral in and of itself so long as the kingdom of man is submitted to the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of man is submitted to the kingdom of God, all kinds of really cool things come from that. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But when the kingdom of man declares itself independent or in rebellion to the kingdom of God, we begin to see things kind of fall apart. And as Christians, what we're watching in our culture today is a lot of that happening where even the things philosophically, even that they failed at, but they believed in this idea that being a good American and being a good Christian overlapped a lot. Not surprisingly, we're seeing that shift. Welcome to the rest of history and the rest of the world. It's hard on us because we're used to this. We've had a couple hundred years of this experiment, and yet now we're having to experience this process happen as our culture, the culture of, of the American culture and the Christian culture are going to overlap less and less and less. More and more often, we'll find ourselves in the future as Christians who live in the, in the kingdom and, and seek to live out the kingdom of Christ but are seeking to live in the American experiment, the, the democratic republic that we have set up here at this point, we're going to see ourselves more and more often choosing between the lesser of evils from our perspective. Again, welcome to the rest of history, Christians throughout history. That's always been the case. When they've had a choice at all, which has in and of itself been rare. So, so here we are, this part of what we're facing. Well, where can we look to guide us through this experience? To guide us as the church in America, what's it like to live in a culture that doesn't always match up and that less and less so does and that isn't really an ally to the, to the culture of the kingdom of God anymore? Well, fortunately, everything in the Bible is written under that experience. Some of them more particular than others, and that's part of why we're looking at the book of Daniel. How do we engage in this new experience? Um, one of my favorite ever expressions of this was by a gentleman named Vody Bauckham, who is a great thinker and speaker, teacher. Um, years ago, he made this analogy. I'm going to read it verbatim. I'm going to read Vody's uh, verbatim um, on this analogy that he creates. Ready? When my wife and I were first married, as college students, we were poor. So poor that we couldn't afford the second O and the R in the word, as the old joke goes. We had nothing Nothing that is except a couple of pieces of hand-me-down furniture. One was a couch that my mother had given us. She had earlier reupholstered it in tan fabric, and it had three large cushions that were adorned with a series of orange squares set inside larger brown squares. It was hideous. Nevertheless, we were proud to have it. We kept that couch for several years. Eventually, we both graduated from college and went from Poe to poor. And gradually we progressed to being merely broke. As we moved up the socioeconomic ladder, we began to acquire new furniture. First a coffee table, 
Then a couple of bar stools, a dining room table, a large floor lamp. Things were really looking up. However, the couch remained. I don't know if it was the prohibitive cost of buying a new couch or the fact that my mother had recovered it herself before she gave it to us, but the couch lingered on. And it happened. The moment of truth arrived. We looked around and realized there was a new theme in our home decor. The apartment had taken on a poor man's modern look. Everything was beginning to come together, everything that is except the couch. The couch stood out like a beggar at a black tie dinner. Something had to be done. The couch had to go. At first, we didn't have the heart to throw it out, nor could we give it away. It had been a gift and a reminder of humble beginnings. So we decided to put it in an extra room. After a while, though, the couch was no longer good enough for that room either. The time had come. It had to go. We did what was once unthinkable. We got up one morning and waited for the trash collector. And when he arrived, I took the long walk out to the curb where I said my final goodbyes. He threw it into the truck and it was gone. Vody then says, in America, the church is somewhere between the back room and the curb. There was a day when Christianity, when the church was the pride of American culture. But over time, it seemed to fit in less. And as we changed this and changed that, it no longer made sense. It just didn't fit within the motif. And eventually it was kind of, we don't want to get rid of it. Obviously, we have a lot of great memories, so we put it in the back and do some lip service. And then eventually you decide, you know what, it's time. And, and he says, culturally, that's where we are. And I think that's right. So this is, this is the challenge that we face as God's people, again, as all of God's people have throughout all of history, throughout the whole world, and we begin to face it. And at this point, we're facing it in rather simple ways. It's really not that big yet, but it may be over the next generation for our kids. And so that's part of why we raise them up the way we do. And as part of why we're going to look at this book is to guide us in that strategic thinking about how to raise up our children and our grandchildren to prepare for that. So we start in chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now we're not going to get distracted here for the fact that this is, there's another place in the Bible that talks about it differently, not the third year, but a different year in Jehoiakim's reign. And there's a whole lot of issues that come up with that. You're going to run into, as we go through the book of Daniel, we're going to run into calendar issues Here's why. We have a calendar that isn't the same as the Hebrew calendar, which isn't the same as the Babylonian calendar. And so very often we will see a lot of the, when, we throw, when I throw out dates to you, it's going to be approximate dates. We're, we're real close, and sometimes we have the day, but we don't always know how they saw those different dates. And, and so we'll, we're going to try with some of that, but just understand, already even today, for example, a date in my notes and the date on the timeline that I downloaded off the internet aren't the same. Now, that's, that may be that neither of them is necessarily wrong. It's that both of them are someone's best guess put in there. So you're going to have to have a little bit of margin as we work through this, but that's part of it. Okay, so here we start. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, who all of you know. No, you don't. I didn't either. I have to, you got to look this stuff up. And so we, we're going to start here with this timeline. Who is Jehoiakim, the king of Judah? So let's start there. Let's throw a um, timeline up. Here are the kings of Israel. And eventually as Israel split between Solomon's son, um, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, you see that the, the nation split. And Ju now you have the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. 
This is a whole other history right here. Um, these are the kings of Judah on this side. We are starting with Hezekiah is where we're going to look. Here's Hezekiah, way down here. Now, the story ends here. So we're not far from the end of the kingship, um, the kingdom of Israel. So we're going to start telling a little story here at Hezekiah. Hezekiah made a little boo-boo, right? Whoopsie. In Isaiah 39, we get to read about this. Isaiah 39, starting in verse 1. This is 100 years before Daniel. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. He showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Okay? So here's the story. Some of you who are a little more cynical than Hezekiah have already caught on that this is a bad idea, right? The Babylonians were doing what police call casing the establishment, okay? And, and Hezekiah is just walking around like, hey, let me show you what's in this vault, and let me show you what's hidden here, and let me show you what's in the hidden cave over here, and it's in the, this is a bad idea. But Hezekiah is, is so proud, we assume this is based in pride, that Hezekiah is so proud of all these amazing things. Incidentally, i got to stop and tell you a quick story about Hezekiah. The, the Hezekiah um, in Israel, this is how different we are as a culture. I'm going to continue to say Hezekiah. But literally, there's a, there's a tunnel in Israel called Hezekiah's Tunnel that we, that we walk through. I was talking to a Jewish gentleman um, in one of the teaching areas. And he asked what we had been doing. And I said, well, this morning we went through Hezekiah's tunnel. And he said, what? And I said, we went through Hezekiah's tunnel. He goes, I don't know this, Hezekiah's tunnel. It's like, I mean, it's just right around the corner. I mean, it would be like living in San Antonio and going, I don't know this Alamo. Like it was, I mean, he's like, I don't know Hezekiah's tunnel. I was like, you know, the, the king of Israel dug the tunnel. And he goes, oh, Hezekiah. And I said, what? He goes, Hezekiah's tunnel. He said, you and I, we say it differently. And I said, well, but, but you say it correctly. I mean, it's your, it's your language, right? And so I'm going to continue to say Hezekiah. It is little moments like that that help you realize how far we're trying to leap to understand something like Daniel. We don't say it the same we don't think the same. We don't understand it the same. We barely know our own history, much less the history of a culture 2,600 years ago and thousands of miles away, right? So we're going to do our best, but just, just know that's what we're the challenge we're facing. Okay, now back to this. Hezekiah foolishly is showing all of his secret treasures to an up-and-coming kingdom, a kingdom that is in the process of rising up against the Assyrians, the most powerful nation in the world, and is in the process of throwing that off. And so these guys are traveling around greeting with people and going, hey, what kind of resources do you guys have? And Hezekiah foolishly shows them all of it. <laughs> so here's, this, here's how this goes. Then the Isaiah, verse 3, then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country. From Babylon. He's all, he's all celebrity starry-eyed here, isn't he? He said, and, and Isaiah, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses I did not show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, 
Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, will be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Okay? I would think normally you would think this is bad news. Sounds bad. They're going to come take everything that's yours, including some of your sons, turn them into eunuchs. We'll talk about that next week a little bit. And, and, and have them serve in his palace. But because Hezekiah is, is at the level of whatever immaturity that he's at at this stage in his life, Hezekiah has the politician's answer. Remember, politicians are always worried about the next election. Versus having the statesman answer. The statesman answer is always worried about the next generation. And in this case, Hezekiah says, whew, that sounds good to me because at least it won't happen while I'm king. Not kidding. Then Hezekiah said, the words of the Lord that you have spoken are good because he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Wow. Man, you got to love that, right? So after Hezekiah, we have Josiah. Josiah follows along and Josiah is an excellent king. Did you throw the timeline back up? The, the, king, the kings. Sorry, go back to the kings. Um, so Josiah, and Josiah is an excellent king. Josiah makes all kinds of reforms. He destroys Baal worship sites. He takes the Asherah poles out of the temple. He ends child sacrifices to Molech. He restores Passover, for example. This is kind of God's awakening for his people to help them avoid the punishment that is coming for their disobedience. But the people don't follow Josiah well enough um, in the end, God allows him to die in a battle against Egypt. His son, so we're now down to Josiah, his son, his son Jehoahaz is made king. In about 611 B.C., an evil king, Pharaoh, he was an evil king, by the way, Je Jehoahaz was <coughs> an evil king, disobeyed God, went right back to all the pagan worship and stuff. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Pharaoh imprisoned him and made Jehoiakim a vassal king. So we've got Jehoahaz and then Jehoiakim here. Sorry, I forget to do that sometimes. Jehoahaz and then Jehoiakim has made the vassal king of Egypt, who is also evil. About three years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and conquers the Egyptians. After defeating the Egyptians in about 605-ish, I know the math doesn't add up exactly right with what I'm saying, but at about 605-ish, along the way, he, as he conquers the land of Egypt, and then he naturally takes Pharaoh's vassal kings, including the one in Israel, including um, Jehoahaz. And in that, um, so he, he comes in under Jehoahaz's reign, like we just read in Daniel chapter 1, in the third, sorry, Jehoiakim, he, he comes, this is Jehoiakim now, sorry, I said Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, that's just so nice that their names are like that, by the way, isn't it? Come on. So, Kim versus Haz. Um, Kim is the vassal. Kim is the vassal. Jehoahaz is the king when? Six years, I say that right. Jehoiakim, Kim is the king, way down here. Jehoiakim is the king when, Babylon, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in. It's about 100 years after the prophecy. So, this is exile number one. We're about to read about it in Daniel 1, verse 2. This is Daniel's exile. It is at this point that Daniel and a handful of his friends and just a few things are taken out and taken back to Babylon. This is strike one. God gives his people, listen, I'm serious about this, 
I will send in the Babylonians to destroy you if you don't straighten up. You're ignoring my law. We'll talk more about it. They are ignoring his basic commandments, very clear, and they're ignoring them. They're worshiping other gods. They're ignoring his Sabbath. They're ignoring his Ten Commandments. Like, this is the basics, and so this is what's going to happen. This is the first exile. Now you can put up the exile timeline, the other one. So this is the first exile that happens right up here. About 607, I said 605, 607, there's, there's about that is the first deportation of Jews. It's just a few. So here's what happens, by the way, here's to catch you up a little bit. In December of 604-ish, Jehoiakim cuts to pieces Jeremiah's scroll of prophecies. He doesn't like Jeremiah's prophecies. Jeremiah says stuff he doesn't like, so he tears it up. Okay, he tears up the prophecies. Jeremiah's prophecies say things like, you're going to be in exile for a while. This is going to happen, and it's going to last. That, pro- that verse we all like, you know, the Jeremiah passage about, you know, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. It's, it's fascinating because every, a lot of people like that when they put it in doilies and they put it on T-shirts and that kind of stuff. I know the plans for you, says the Lord, to prosper you and et cetera. Understand, that's in the midst of God saying to his people through Jeremiah, this was my plan for you and you blew it. It is still my plan for you. So in like, I don't know, 70 years, I'm going to call you back and continue to fulfill my plan, which you don't seem to be getting. Um, I've noticed that usually on the, on the little doilies and stuff, people don't reference the 70 years part of that whole like, I know the plans I have for you, thus says the Lord, that in 70 years I'll bring you out of exile and do good things for you, um, which is, I mean, if it applies to you, it applies to you, right? So, okay, here we go. Babylon capture, uh, conquers Jerusalem's rebellion. So what we get is this rebellion, and this rebellion, <laughs> this is hard to follow even with the notes. Um, in this rebellion, after you're going to get these 70 years of captivity, uh, you get from Jeremiah um, following through. After three years of submission to Nebuchadnezzar, approximately Jehoiakim attempts to throw off the yoke, but is chastened by his rebellion. This happens, we read about this in 2 Kings. All this kind of stuff comes through Jeremiah and 2 Kings, we read about it. All the way down to 586 BC, totally exasperated by the, and I think it says 587 up there. 597 is what it says up there for the second Jewish deportation. So we have this exile that happens in the second one where totally exasperated by the disloyalty to the Jewish kings, Nebuchadnezzar orders all the sacred vessels to be destroyed and carried off. You have a new short-term king, Jehoiakim reigns. Babylon is still engaging with the whole world. This is when Babylon comes back and it sacks Jerusalem again and takes its officials and soldiers. Then we get Mataniah. Mataniah is renamed um, Zedekiah. He is the last king, the last king of Israel, but he is the made the vassal king of Babylon as Zedekiah is, and at some point he rebels. Now the prophets are warning them not to do this, but they decide that they know better, the kings do, and so they rebel. This time when Nebuchadnezzar comes back, he burns it. He raises the whole city of Jerusalem. He's done. Apparently, the whole third strike thing predates American baseball. Third strike, this time I'm done. According to this timeline, that happens somewhere around 587, 586, somewhere around there. Nebuchadnezzar sends his armies back. This time, they level the temple. They burn, apparently, all of the houses in Jerusalem, and they tear the wall down stone by stone. Now, you already know, some of you already know because you studied the book of Nehemiah, Somewhere down the road, that process is going to reverse itself. 
which is really cool. That will not be what we're studying. All of the, what we study this time, what, what happens here, all is happening during Daniel's lifetime. So first, Daniel and just a few of his friends are taken to Babylon, away from their homes, to be all alone in the land of Babylon. The good news is, eventually God sends all of Daniel's old friends to Babylon as well. The bad news is, it's in exile from their homeland. And this begins to define the Jewish people. In the same way that being enslaved by the Egyptians defined them, the exile begins to define them. And we're going to spend time talking about this concept of exile and how it, it is a theme that is woven all throughout. There is so many ways, just as a, as a sneak preview, there's so many ways. And what the gospel is, is a, an exiled people brought back to their king. There's a sense in which that's what the gospel is. What Jesus came to do was restore the relationship between a people and their king. And, and we can grasp that as we go through the book of Daniel and continue to study it. All right, so, man, we're flying all the way to verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. I just talked about that from the historical perspective. With some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, Shinar is an important place. Obviously, this is called Babylon, and yet in this place, what we get is it's called Shinar, and this is to connect us. This is to remind us of some things. So you remember the story, you remember the old story from Genesis? So in Genesis 10 references this place, but Genesis 11 gives it important context. So in Genesis chapter 11, here's what we have. In Genesis chapter 11, what's happened is we've had this flood that, that just devastated civilization, right? And you're down to just a very few people, and these very few people, when they climb off the ark, they begin to rebuild civilization. As they rebuild their civilization, as they get it rebuilt, here's what's wild. So when God made Adam, it seems to be the part of the purpose of making Adam, of making mankind, was to rule this creation under God, the physical creation. Remember that God told Adam that he would have dominion over this creation, right? Such dominion that Adam, part of Adam's job was to name aspects of creation, so God has said, I've created this creation, and I have now created a race of people whose job is to tend this creation, to have dominion over this creation, have authority over this creation under me. Do you see that as God creates this, there's a sense in which now there is this power of man. And God has made man very powerful. But man's power is under the authority of God, God's power. That's the concept here. Well, very quickly, we don't know how long, but it didn't take long for Adam and Eve, the representative of the kingdom of man, under the kingdom of God, to say, we really think we could do this better on our own. We really think we should be rulers on our own. That's why the temptation, listen, you'll be like God, works. Because they want to be like God. Well, we kind of, I mean, we're kings, we're rulers, we're the king and queen of a new creation, and we're in charge of this, but we kind of chafe under this whole God thing. And so when, when the serpent says, you know what, if you eat this fruit, if you disobey God, now you get to be God's kind of yourself. You'll be like God in this way. And so that's a temptation that works because the kingdom of man is already prepared to rebel against the kingdom of God, and they're still in the garden. So that's what happens. Well, we see this again. So God wipes out mankind, and, and civilization comes back together, and they begin to rebuild. Well, guess what? Guess where they rebuild? 
Genesis 11, starting in verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, which makes sense. They were all restarting, right? And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. This is where civilization restarts. This is where the kingdom of man places its capital. This location is now represents all of the greatness of man. So they come together and guess what they do? They take this great power that God has given them and they say, we're pretty awesome. We're so awesome, we're going to build a giant tower that's going to bring us in equality with God himself, that's going to bring us to God himself. We're, going to, we, we're so smart, we understand how to build things. We understand architecture and, and we understand engineering and we understand government and organization and we're, we've got all this together and we're going to, because of this power God has given us, we're now going to establish ourselves in our own kingdom and, and we're going to rise ourselves up to God. There's different interpretations. There's almost no information here on exactly what's going on. Some people say that this is, we're going to build a tower to God so that we can storm his castle and overthrow him. It may just be we're going to build something so cool that God is going to say, wow, they're really awesome. We think, I, th I just think they ought to be God. Like there's all different ways to engage with this, but here's, that's what they do. God and his divine counsel look down on what's going on and say, mm, this is not good. We gave God, we gave man so much power. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw some things at their feet. And we're going to pull the rug out from under them and make this more difficult for them. We're going to handicap their power by turning them against each other. And we're going to turn these kingdoms of man. Now there's not the kingdom of man. There are kingdoms of men. And now they're going to fight against each other. They have different languages and they're going to develop different cultures and they're going to compete with one another rather than coordinating with one another. It's a fascinating picture, the idea that man is so powerful. Oh, it's important to hear, by the way. There's nothing wrong with the fact that humans are powerful or that we're smart. God made us that way. We're supposed to lead and rule and do all those different things. That's on purpose. The problem is when we don't submit that to God. When that powers, it's not wrong that we have technological advances. It's great that we can build things, that we can solve things, that we can, that we can create instruments and we can play music and we can sing, that we can do all these. We have scientific advances and medical advances. All of these things are in and of themselves probably at least should be understood as neutral. It's okay that man can do that. However, the problem is when we get too high and mighty, we get too big for our britches, as we say around here, and we go, you know what? We're so awesome, we don't need God anymore. And that's what people are saying now. If you read modern day, kind of the neo-atheist movement, what they say is, it's not that I say there is no God, it's that my understanding of the universe requires no God. I don't need him. I don't care if you worship him or not. He's, he's not necessary. I can just go do this on my own. Well, that's, that's kind of where we are. That is the culture of the world. And the culture of the world will always offer us simple, easy ways to live without God. At least that's what it will appear to be. Here's a way you can invest your time and your money and your resources in a way that has no eternal significance. Here's things that you can believe or do or practice or live. See, it's not necessary that we actually hate God. All that's necessary is that we just believe in us fully. That's all that's necessary. And that's what this kingdom represented. These two places, Shinar, which becomes Babylon, and 
by the way, the other one. Wayne Broderick, referencing another author, mentioned that there was a sense in which the Bible is really a tale of two cities, the entire story of the Bible. Jerusalem, representing the kingdom of God, and Babylon, representing the kingdom of man. The place on the planet has represented the kingdom of mankind for a long time, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. One represents the best of mankind, which in the end is always tragic, all that mankind has to offer, and the other offers the blessing of the kingdom of God has for those who are willing to give up on the kingdom of man, who are willing to sacrifice that. <coughs> Daniel is going to be such an ultimate expression of someone who has to make this choice. He's literally, he and his friends are going to be brought into the home field advantage of the kingdom of man. They are young. They've been taken away. Everything has changed for them. And they're going to face in the center of Shinar itself, where the Tower of Babel itself was built, they are going to experience all of the pressure that the kingdom of man can bring on them. Pressures that we really can't even wrap our brains around. The amount of pressure that these young men are going to face in the, from the kingdom of man. What are they going to do with that? That's what already in Daniel, by halfway through Daniel chapter 1, we will already be asking ourselves, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? How are they going to withstand this kind of pressure? Daniel's going to have to decide to bring God's kingdom to Babylon and to live out God's kingdom as a forced ambassador in a strange land, or he's going to have to, well, he's got two other choices. One is he can conform. He could just become Babylonian. He could dress like them and talk like them and worship their gods. Or he can try to burn the place down, become a, a terrorist. The type of zeal that causes you to fight against the culture just for the sake of fighting against the culture, right? Where you, you're trying to burn the culture down because you hate the culture. And what Daniel is going to represent is what is often referred to as the third way which is the way of saying, I become a blessing to the culture without ever compromising which kingdom I live in. This is the picture of the ambassador. I'm an encouragement to the culture. I'm a blessing to the culture. I am not of this culture fundamentally, but I'm in it, and I'm a blessing to it. This is what we're going to get to see. Here's where we're going to, you can listen. Daniel's going to bring God's truth. So here, here we go, verse 3. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuchs, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the, good, the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. That's the traits he's looking for. And to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. We'll talk more about the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were at once a race of people or an ethnic group of people, a, a region of people that had become really a philosophy, a way of engaging with the world, an interesting mixture of magic and science that the Chaldean people began to represent. They would kind of been in Babylon, what we would say the Greek culture is for us. Um, none of us think of ourselves as Greek um, or very few of us would, and yet much of our thinking is influenced by Greek culture and we would we would even honor Greek culture. We build buildings that kind of way. And when we think of Greek culture, we don't think of current, well, like 2020 Greek culture. We're thinking of ancient Greek culture. It's kind of like that. We'll dig more into that. 
So here's, here's the traits they're looking for. Without blemish, good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent in social standing. The word wisdom can throw us off because our natural temptation, these Hebrew words all overlap with one another, and so it's, it can be tough, but um, probably this does not mean wisdom the way we in the church mean wisdom, like to see as God sees. The, Chal- the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians would not have been looking for that. What they, here's what they would have meant. So this is what I think they're saying. One, good looking. Two, good looking. Three, skills. Four, good genes. Five, high IQ. And six, they know their place. So here in Hollywood, not Hollywood, Babylon, sorry. Freudian slip. Here in the American culture, where what we prize above all things, the, the kingdom of man is not very creative, is it? Still looking for the same stuff. Good looks, good looks, skills, high IQ, basic information, good genes, and someone who knows their place in society. This has is, this is not changed, has it? The kingdom of man is still looking for the same group of people. So we're going to watch as these four young men, which exemplify what the world actually is looking for, but who aren't impressed by the world in return. They're not willing to embrace celebrity at the expense of kingdom. They're not willing to do it. And it's so tough today, isn't it? It's wild that we live in an age where because of social media, you literally have people who are famous for no other reason than because they're famous. Their celebrity is 100% dependent upon the fact that they are celebrities. So if you don't know about this, you just have your kids or your grandkids show you which YouTube channels they watch. These people are morons. And, and, but they're morons. What they're, you know what they're famous for? They're famous for having a lot of viewers. Did you hear that? What they're famous for is for being famous. Are they famous for their content? No. Are they, in fact, sometimes what they're famous is like an, a famous for their anti-content because they're ironic in their content, right? And so literally you have people who, who they make millions and millions of dollars and they don't even know what to do with it. They make millions of dollars because they have millions of views and people are throwing money at them and saying, will you just mention our product in your millions, in front of your millions and millions of viewers? Do I need to do it well? No. Subtly? No. Does it need to be in any way um, um, professionally done? I don't care. What, I'm giving you million, I'm throwing money at you because millions of people hear what you say. So just in some ridiculous way, would you mention me? And I'll give you millions of dollars. Why? Because millions of people, it is, it is, we are there. Celebrity is now the ultimate expression of celebrity. That's where we are. It's, it's, it's very weird. And yet, how do we engage with that as a culture? How do we live with that as a culture? How do we as, as Christians, is that bad? No. It's neutral. That's what we've got to remember. The kingdom of man, when it's submitted to God, can be awesome. The kingdom of man out from under the authority of God is tragic at best. Here's a passage that I think will be a good theme for us as we go through Daniel. You ready? This is from the psalmist, Psalm 73. Who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing else on earth I desire beside you. There's a great two sentences. Rich Mullins said it this way in one of his songs. Who have I in heaven but you, Jesus? And what better can I hope to find down here on earth? 
This is important for us to remember. Earth is good. God gave it to us. He created it. Yes, it's fallen and in rebellion in some ways against its creator. God made us powerful. That's good. He gave us dominion. That's awesome. That power and that dominion must always be submitted to the authority of the kingdom of heaven. When it is, awesome. When it's not, tragic. What do I have in heaven? Nothing but Jesus. What do I have down here on earth? You know, when I think about it, nothing but Jesus that's worthwhile. It all has to fall under him. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. Stand with me, please, as we pray. Father, how, how, what a blessing to get to engage in the power of your word. To see that here we are, not even 2,000 years later, 2,600 years later. And the things that we face and struggle with, your word is still as relevant as ever. Active, living, alive right in front of us. Father, as we continue to, to wrestle through this, these passages, <coughs> I pray that you will... Um, that you will give us great insight. That, that not only will we get to learn about this brother, these brothers of ours who face this pressure, but we will learn from them. We'll learn from them how to live in a culture that is a kingdom that, that honors and worships the kingdom of man. And, and as we sit here at a political season, as we watch some people who worship the kingdom of man in opposition to other people who worship the kingdom of man, I pray that you will always help us to worship the king, your kingdom, worship in your kingdom, your ways, you as our king. Lord, you are our king and we are your servants. I pray we would learn better and better all the time, more and more clearly all the time, how to live that out in our lives with the people who you've given us to shepherd and the things you've given us to shepherd. And Lord, I pray today um, as we look to you, and we would find you in new ways in our life. Thank you that you're that kind of a God. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.